from Podcast One. Previously on Colors. I was born in the segregated South and grew up there. Dorothy Butler Gilliam, the first African-American female journalist hired by the Washington Post. We heard of lynchings and all kinds of things, but those things never made the newspaper. I'm proud that the Washington Post has on its front page a story about recent lynches. These are things that were hidden behind the, the, the cotton curtain decades ago. Coming up on this episode of Colors, we should be taking a very focused look at our police departments. Douglas Gansler, former attorney general for the state of Maryland. I think every police department in America, frankly, should have an independent assessment as to how is that department handling issues of diversity, cultural sensitivity, figuring out how to bridge what is clearly a distrust in many communities, particularly communities of color, with law enforcement. That's coming up on this episode of Colors. Simmering racial tensions. Segregation now and tomorrow and forever. Fighting injustice. I have a dream. Conflict looming. Brutality exposed. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. The search for solutions starts here. From WTOP in Washington, D.C. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And I'm J.J. Green, and I'm black. Welcome to the show. Our guest on this edition of Colors is Doug Gansler. He is the former attorney general of Maryland, and before that, he was the county prosecutor called state's attorney in Montgomery County, Maryland, which is a suburb of Washington, and uh, he's... An old-time friend of mine, I'm glad to have him on the program with us today. Doug, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Chris. Great to be with both of you. Let me begin with a, a tough one. Defund the police. You have spent most of your career in law enforcement. When you hear words like defund the police, does it sound as crazy to you as it does to me, or does it make any sense? No, it does sound crazy, and actually that's the unfortunate, in my view, part of what's going on. I, I think what's going on in America today is phenomenal. It's it's great on so many different levels, and, and not the least of which at every one of these protests, the majority of people that are protesting in favor of Black Lives Matter are actually not Black. And I think that means the word is getting out, and people are really rethinking the way they view their companies, their the way they live their lives, who their friends are, and what we're doing in America. So I think that's a, a great thing. But then what happens is people come out with the idea of defund the police, which people, you know, the, the, those who have sort of been promoting that, some of those people have sort of walked that back and say, yeah, we really don't mean defund the police. We mean we should be looking at alternative ways of, of addressing situations, more mental health money and so forth. But the idea of defunding the police it loses the credibility of the movement, in my view. And that's not what we should be doing at all. Now, we should be taking a very deep, focused look at our police departments. I think every police department in America, frankly, should have an independent assessment as to how is that department handling issues of diversity, cultural sensitivity, and you know different methods and ways in which they respond to crimes. What is the effect of the law enforcement bill of rights on on police officers being um, you know questioned about different 
instances and how are complaints handled. So I do think we need to not have the police department do their own uh, sort of uh, analysis or inspections or investigations themselves. It's a little bit like asking the elephant to pass the peanuts. I think these need to be independent assessments and reviews to make sure that our, our police are culturally sensitive, diverse, but also that they're figuring out how to bridge what is clearly a distrust in many communities, particularly communities of color, with law enforcement. So, Doug, I'd like to jump in and ask this question. Um, Defund the police, based on a number of people that I spoke to who were in some situations supporting that process and that idea in the beginning, what they said to me was this was not a, a intended to be something that actually took money away from police departments to destroy police departments, but it was an idea that was designed to jumpstart the conversation, uh, to push the idea of reforming police, which is what you just said was a good idea. And I think everyone will agree, uh, based on what we've seen in the last few months, and certainly what some people have been talking about for years, uh, uh, defunding the police was a ploy to get people to think more about it. So the question I want to ask you is, do you think this has moved the needle at all? Well, I don't think that the concept of defund the police has moved the needle at all. I mean, I think that, like I said, I think that undermines the credibility of the whole idea of what they mean to say, which is reform the police and reform not just the police, because most police officers are dedicated and are trying to protect us and trying to protect communities. But how policing is done in America and the judicial system as a whole. I was a federal prosecutor. I was federal prosecutor for six years. Uh, I was a, a local prosecutor for eight years and the attorney general and the head of all the attorney generals in, in the country. And I did uh, that job for eight years. So, you know, you see systematic institutionalized racism in our judicial system. So I think people want to see that changed. But words matter. It's kind of like, you know, we're tearing down statues because people think statues matter and the names of schools matter and words matter. So when people are using words such as defund the police, to most ears, it it sounds like you're trying to actually take money away from police departments and replace it with something else. When in fact, what you're trying to do is modernize the police to look like America and behave like we want police officers to behave in this current day America. The term law and order has been tossed around recently in politics. We are an apolitical show, but nonetheless, we have to comment on what happens in the news. When you hear the words law and order, what does it mean to you, Doug Gensler? Well, (laughs) it means to me um, tough but fair and fair. And we need to be fair. And and how I would run and did run my law enforcement offices was always with an eye toward the idea that never, the most important thing you want to do is uh, make sure everything you do is completely fair. The fact of the matter is many people like me, uh, you know, I, I'm politically obviously Democrat and, and I people like me go to law school. I want to be a public defender. I want to defend the rights of, of wrongfully charged people. But if the system is done right, if the prosecutor is fair and the prosecutor 
recognizes that the job of the prosecutor is not to get convictions, but to do the right thing in each and every case, then that's sort of where you want to be. So it, law, law and order to me is, you know, be fair, make sure we, we, we're, we're looking at the system in a colorblind way, socioeconomically neutral way and so forth. However, like every American, when you hear law and order, you think of, you know, Bull Connor and Nixon and others who kind of come down with batons on people's heads for peacefully protesting and that kind of thing. So it means different things to different people. You know, one of the things that occurs to me as I listen to you talk about all of these elements, um, a lot of people are still kind of stuck and caught in this place where they can't have this kind of conversation uh, with a person of a different race without it turning into something unfortunate um, or less than productive in terms of conversation. So one of the things that I think folks would ask is you, Doug Gansler, uh, and I don't think we've said this during the course of the show yet, but you are a white American. So um, what is your experience with African-Americans and with other people of color? And just uh, full disclosure, I know a little bit about your past, but I don't think our listeners know it. But you've got a pretty significant history when it comes to race relations, correct? Yeah, and, and that's why, it, it to me, this whole thing is fascinating. I think the last time this country went through something like this was 1968. And, you know, people were dying in many view, people's view, people were dying needlessly in Vietnam. Well, today people are dying needlessly of COVID. Um, there were clearly uh, brewing and, and uh, bubbling issues of race. And that led to sort of not only the civil rights movement in the 60s, um, but the implementation of the civil rights movement thereafter. And I think that, you know, a lot of people say, well, this is uh, this is a time when people are getting woke. Now they're being woke. And to me, you know, I like you mentioned, I've been sort of living with this for decades. I mean, I was I was in seventh grade and, and, I, and I was in the Junior Olympics and I was the only white person to show up in 3000 people at, at Spingarn High School. And, and I remember being afraid to get out of the car. I was a little kid. And then everyone was so friendly and welcoming and and from that moment on, I was I ended up going to a school in Washington, which is very, very liberal. And I had, you know, many African Americans in my wedding and friends forever. And we had the, the conversation that we're having today. I was having, you know, in high school and college, and and throughout, I ended up running um, Senator Obama's campaign when everyone else was with uh, Hillary Clinton. And the first time that he ran, I started the first civil rights division in the in, the, in Maryland when I was the Attorney General of Maryland and. Um, you know, on, I was the head of the Criminal Justice Committee for the NAACP in 1989. You know, so I've been sort of looking at this issue. I think it defines our country. Um, I think it's both the stain of our country and the potential of our country. And and going forward, how are we going to address race? Um, not only black, white, but all all Latino, obviously, is something yeah. that wasn't really there back then and now is. And yeah. so these are these are these are tough issues. But. I, I just I love what's going on in America right now because the conversations that are happening, I think I, I sort of would push back a little bit with you, JJ, on this, which is, you know, people are talking about these issues in the dog park. White people, they're just all where if I, I was the dog park this morning with there were, everyone there was white and they were talking about race and what can be done. And, you know, are there ceilings? Are there artificial ceilings? And what's going on in many walks of life? And look, no one no one really 
wants to say I'm a racist and no one really wants to recognize their biases. But I think what's happening now is people are saying, well, you know, do I have do I have people of other colors as my friends? And what are we doing at my office about making sure that there, that, that, that our office, our company re reflects the county, the state, the country? Yeah, you know, one of the things, just really quickly, sorry, Chris, I'll be very brief with this that I've been hearing is that people saying that they have friends that are of different races is one thing, but engaging with them is an entirely different thing because some people are just afraid to do that because of what it might do to that friendship. So one of the things that I've been hearing now is people talking about this idea that, no, I'm not a racist, but... I'm also anti-racist. Does that make sense? Yes. That? Yes. And I think the idea that you, you know, you, it's easy to sort of float through life and say, hey, I'm not a racist, but I'm not going to do anything to change it. The fact that there are racists out there and, and, you know, just having a feel, understanding what people are going through. I remember I was at Yale as a freshman and my, one of my best friends in the world, he was my wedding guy named Howard Epps, um, African-American guy, went to Harvard and we went to the, our, the first step show I'd ever been to at the African-American house. I walked in, I was the only white guy there, it was packed, and I said, Howard, I literally said, Howard, I'm the only white guy here. Without missing a beat, Howard said, now you know what it's like for me every day of my life. <laughs> and I literally, go. I was like stunned. I mean, I can show you where we were standing because you have to think about what is that like? Like, what, do you, what would it be like at the dog park this morning if you're an African-American walking up and 10 white people are there with their dogs do you how what how how what's your approach and how do you uh, how do you as an African American approach that group of people and people are starting to think a little bit more I would say a lot more about that which I just view as a very very positive development. You're listening to Colors. My name is Mike Jakaitis. I am the Afternoon Drive producer for WTOP, and I'm an Asian American. I am Filipino on my mom's side and Lithuanian white on my dad's side. As a kid, I was made fun of a little, but nothing really bad. But, you know, I was made fun of because of how I looked from whites and blacks, to be honest. I am part of an interracial marriage. I married a very lovely Irish girl. I've never had any problem with her family. They all liked me. They had no problem with our relationship uh, from the start. However, my wife did tell me that if there were some relatives that were still living at the time that we got married, there would have been some issues. Hi, I'm Rick Massimo. I live in Washington, D.C., and I'm white. But I think it's really worth remembering that Italian-Americans like myself up until the early 20th century, in a lot of places in this country, we weren't considered white. And I think it would be helpful if we thought about what the term white means, who came up with it, why they came up with it, and how it changes and why it changes. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America with Chris Kaur and J.J. Green. Let me just, um, at least in my questions here, it's not even a question, it's a, it's a quick story, but I'd like to get both of your reaction to it. Uh, I live uh, very close to St. Petersburg, Florida, and there have been protests there, street marches, peaceful, but protests every day now for going on quite a while. And over the weekend, a group of them left St. Petersburg and started to come on to Treasure Island, which is a suburb of St. Petersburg. 
And the many of the people who march are white, but the guy that's the leader is a, a black guy. And he started coming across the bridge and they were tying up traffic. Well, the Treasure Island Police Department came out and instead of confronting them, the chief of police for, for uh, Treasure Island got out of his car and walked over to talk to this guy who was leading the protesters. And the two of them sat there, stood there and talked and talked and talked. And in the end, they ended up giving each other a big hug. I realize in the age of COVID, that's not proper to do, but nonetheless, it was you know emotionally real. And the leader of the protest turned and said, let's leave here. This police department gets it. And they left. And that is another way to handle this properly. If police departments would do a more, let's say, hugging, maybe not physically, but emotionally hugging and less confronting, maybe we can get through this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Look, and that you saw even in the wake of George Floyd, you saw the police officer the chief was you know, on his knees, people were going by and, and, and others cases around the country. You're seeing uh, the police react different ways. I mean, the police look, law enforcement does feel like it's under attack and it's a little unfair because, you know, there is nothing more scary, in my view, than being a police officer. You pull somebody over in a car at two in the morning in a dark place and not knowing what's going to happen when that window goes down and you have a family at home and they're very underpaid and they're there to protect us. So it, it's a little bit unfair that all law enforcement, all police are being under attack because what you saw, Chris, is I think where most people are. And, and there, there are bad officers. And a lot of that is because um, the, the way in which no one sort of reviewed or taken a look at how these police departments hire people, what training they have and so forth. But, you know, that's, it's sort of the nonviolent versus violent approach. And you just watch nonviolence at its at its best. I'm not sure I hear a question in there for me, but all police departments are not created equal. Some police departments don't have significant uh, populations of different races. Some just have one race or maybe one or two. Some police departments have many different races that they have to deal with on a regular basis. So they get a lot of experience. They get a lot of on-the-job training and have had for many years in dealing with that. What kind of practice do police departments need to engage in on a daily basis, no matter where you are, uh, to prepare for that day, you know, when you have to deal with a situation that's uncomfortable? What kind of situation do they need to, to, to get into so that they're ready for that? Well, look, like any job, police officers come from very different backgrounds. And some, you know, come from the neighborhoods of people, you know, the, the guy who was driving Freddie Gray in Baltimore when Freddie Gray died grew up in the same neighborhood as Freddie Gray. Both were African-American. And, and you know, that that is very different than some of the other officers on that case that weren't even from Baltimore, even Maryland. And so I, I do think, JJ, that, that diversity is critical. I think that's how you change America. I mean, that's why the gay, you know, gay rights movement moved so quickly. I mean, I was five years ahead on marriage equality in Maryland, and we ended up passing it. And I almost got impeached because I wrote an opinion recognizing out-of-state same-sex marriage cases in Maryland. And and I and, remember and was, that. I remember that very well. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It was like, wait, yeah. what? You know, this is the Constitution. It's full faith and credit. We we accept marriages from other states that recognize it. But that said. The reason why that, in my view, was such a fast-moving cultural change 
for people, and there's still people that don't accept marriage equality, but for most people do, and, and it's because they realize that they have a gay person in their family or their neighbor or their work. Well, I think it, it, it the same with the with African-Americans and other uh, cultural groups. You know, once you know somebody who, and, and actually know them and get to know them and mm-hmm. how they think and realize they want the same things that you do for their family and their lives, I think that is, is going to be how we, we change you know, bridge that cultural gap. And um, it, within the police department, therefore, we need to have a lot more. Uh, every department needs to concern itself with diversity. And so I think that's important. I think the cultural training is important. I think one thing that really is important for police departments is just how they function. In other words, the idea of community policing is critical. That is, police to, police officers that are working in the same communities day in and day out and establish relationships with the people that they're serving in that community, they get to know each other, um, I think it, it is very important um, and it works. And then community prosecution on top of that. So I think, you know, there are a lot of different things you can do, you know, a little things. I mean, one of the things I did when I was, um, Chris mentioned I was the state's attorney, the DA, I took every time a police officer shot his or her gun in Montgomery County, Maryland, a county of over a million people, every time that officer shot their gun, I put that case in front of the grand jury. I didn't make an assessment whether I thought it was justified or not. I let the grand jury, 23 people from the community and that they were serving, decide whether or not that was justified given the circumstances of the shooting. And the police hated that at first, but then recognized that, you know, that that made sense um, and, and really embraced the concept. So there are things we can do differently, look at differently. And we ought to do that. And this is the moment we can do that. I do think this is going, that's the thing you hear about all the time. Is this going to really have a lasting change? You know, after 9-11, people were really, really, really friendly to each other for about six months. And then everyone went back to where they were. I think this is going to be different. I think people are going to look at race through their own lenses uh, going forward in a very different way. Our guest has been Doug Gansler, the former Attorney General of Maryland, and JJ. I think we picked the right guy to be on Colors for this episode. He uh, yeah, he framed it in a way that none of our other guests have because they've not really been in a position like his. Yeah, and I I hope that you are correct that people don't return to the the neutral corners because there's too much at, at stake. So thank you for sharing your time and your insight and expertise with us today, Doug Gansler. Well, thank you, guys. Thanks for doing the show. I mean, look, these conversations are happening everywhere in the country right now, and it's great to have it more formalized on a show like this So, and and getting all these different sort of perspectives. Thank you, Doug. All right. Thanks, guys. Our guest has been Doug Gansler, the former attorney general of the state of Maryland, and terrific guest. We really appreciate him coming on. Thanks very much, Doug. And and JJ, I think you'd have to agree. He had a lot to say that added to our podcast today. Yeah, he did. Uh, And he definitely walked the walk and uh, it was good to hear from him. Speaking of walking the walk, you may remember the former director of national intelligence, James Clapper. Very well, yes. You know, he wrote a book several years ago that just, just to me, epitomized walking the walk. So here is a white guy 
who grew up in the era when a lot of things, really bad things, were going on for uh, between the races. You know, you talk about the Jim Crow era. You talk about all of the things that were taking place during the course of the '60s, the, the rioting, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, he told me a very interesting story about him and his family. They were overseas. His father was in the army. Uh, and the entire family was stationed at Hokkaido, Hokkaido Island, which is the northernmost island in Japan, with the U.S. Army in 1952. And he told me this story that's in his book called Facts and Fears, and it was absolutely extraordinary, especially when you consider the time. This is a public moment that took place between Clapper's mother and his dentist, who was black. Give it a listen. And every Sunday, there'd be a big Sunday brunch and all the officers would dress up in their uniforms and uh, wives would dress up in their Sunday best, which included, uh, if you can imagine, hats and white gloves. <laughs> and they would typically have a, a Japanese band who would uh, play great imitations of American popular music. So um, for my sister and me, uh, these events were kind of, uh, you know, we'd get all dressed up and all that, and they were kind of torture, but we endured them. So, um, as it happened, this one particular uh, Sunday, this black de dental officer was there, and, but, of course, uh, sitting by himself off on the periphery of, of the seating area. And I think my mother did this deliberately, where she waited for a break in the music, and then I thought rather ostentatiously got up, walked across the dance floor, uh, past the uh, brunch line and went to the table where this uh, black officer was sitting and spoke with him for a bit and and then uh, uh, apparently invited him to join us at our table and took him by the hand and again uh, walked across uh, the table uh, as openly and ostentatiously as she possibly could. Mm -hmm. um, and bear in mind, the setting here is 1952. I'll never forget the look on my dad's face it was a combination of uh, amusement, um, admiration, and to a certain extent fear. Because as my mom was walking across hand in hand with the uh, black dentist, uh, you could have heard a pin drop. Uh, conversation stopped. All heads turned towards my mom. And my dad was getting a lot of looks like, can't you control your wife? Yeah. <laughs> we made room at our table. Uh, for him and uh, and at our brunch and uh, you know part of what part of company and then went home and you know the reason I think uh, JJ I remember this event so indelibly even though it's been what sixty seven years or so since it happened was that my mother never said a word about uh, what she did or why she did it, why she did it and for some reason. I don't know, that just made a huge impression on me because she talked incessantly about a lot of other things, most of which I forgot. That was 1952. Not a lot of that was happening, certainly in a public place like that. Well, it's a wonderful story. And um, what I like best about it is when his mom gets up and nobody makes any comment about it. She just physically demonstrates what was in her heart. And that's kind of what we need more of right now.
And that is exactly the kind of person that Jim Clapper has turned out to be. You know, he did say uh, further in our conversation that um, he uh, modeled his life and his career after that moment with his mother. So that, you know, if you read his book, you'll see some 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 episodes in there where it's very clear that he never forgot that lesson. Well, J.J., you and I have known each other for 30 years, and I know that you are a man of faith. And so I this relates to taking down the statues of all the imperfect people in America's past. It was written by Timothy Dolan. Cardinal Dolan is the Bishop of New York. And he writes this, and I just wanted, as a man of faith, I want to get your impression on this. He says, years ago, I was dedicating a new parish to St. Peter. A woman wrote in protest, why would you name a church after such a coward, a sinner who denied the Lord, even when Jesus needed him the most? Knowing her and what parish she was from, I wrote back, but you're a proud member of St. Mary Magdalene Church. She surely was not a paragon of virtue for a chunk of her life either. The point is, if we can't name churches after sinners, the only titles we'd have left would be Jesus and his mother. Isn't the same thing true of American personalities? Is there any more effective way to comprehend America's history of racism than reading, say, Huckleberry Finn? As a historian by training, I want to remember the good and the bad and recall with gratitude how even the people who have an undeniable dark side can have let light prevail and leave the world better. I mentioned that in the wake of taking down statues of Teddy Roosevelt and U.S. Grant. Not perfect, but probably made the world better. Thomas Jefferson had slaves. Uh, uh, George Washington had slaves. Not perfect people, but left the world better. So perhaps we need to think before we tear down people that were imperfect that, you know, from a Christian viewpoint, the only perfect people were Jesus and his mom. So that my take on it, and you, I'm Catholic, and that's Mary's a bigger figure in the Catholic Church than I think in other churches. But I'm just curious to get your reaction as a person of faith to that. Well, I am Protestant, not Catholic, a member of the African Methodist Episcopal Church. Uh, and I will say this to you about that. Yes, it's all about giving people a, a chance to right wrongs and to in fact, that's from my understanding, that's what the church is all about, giving people an opportunity to turn away from the things that they have done. That said, you know, as time passes, names of bridges and names of buildings and names of streets change anyway. Not saying that that's an excuse. What I'm saying is names do change as history, as time passes. That's true. The idea that's happening right now of changing names on buildings and 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 things like that um, has more to do with the time that we're in and people need the ability to see some kind of concrete change they see it now they also see what many people have been talking about for decades as offensive so i think that yes it's time to make these changes but i do think as well you, we do need to remember the history. We do need to remember these people like the, Rose, the Teddy Roosevelt's and the U.S. Grants, but other people who have done things that were not very benevolent at all. There are museums for those individuals, their stories and the imagery that depicts them. So I don't think it's all about just tearing them down or removing them from public view and forget about it. I think 
I think it's I think it's there there's a place for them right now. So here's a question for you, Chris. Reparations. Should there be reparations and who who should participate in this and how should it go? Yeah, that's uh, I've talked about it on the radio for years. That's an boy a hard topic to do. That we could do a whole show on that, JJ. Um, my take, and again, this is as a white guy from the Middle East whose parents came you from mean the uh, Midwest. The <laughs> Not- so this is coming as a white guy from the Midwest <laughs> whose uh, whose grandparents uh, immigrated from Sweden uh, after the Civil War. You know, do I think that my family, because of the the color of my skin, owes something to another family because our skin has a different color? I don't. I mean, I mean, I need I need to be kind. I need to be helpful. I need to be aware of what's going on. I need to understand that it is harder to be black than it is to be white. There's no question about that. But reparations, meaning writing a check or something like that, it doesn't make sense to me. No. How about you? There needs to be a bigger discussion about that. I mean, yeah, that's what I said. This is a tough one because this is a, yeah, you know, as but, you said, it's been going on for years. Yeah, um, but I do think that there needs to be a bigger discussion. Now, this doesn't mean that, you know, everybody that's that's black or everybody that's uh, Asian or Latin or whatever, everybody that's non-white gets a check. I don't think that's the idea here. I think that there are other things that can be done. There's recognition, and there's also uh, other things that could lead or could essentially amount to financial incentives. Or there are things that can be done, and those I think I'd need to be, I think need to be taken in, in, into consideration in a larger discussion. I'm JJ Green, and I'm black. I'm Chris Core, and I'm white. And this is Colors. If you'd like to make a comment or ask a question, email us at colors at WTOP.com. Coming up in our next episode, Steve Weich from the NFL.com. If it weren't for him, we may never have heard the blockbuster story about Colin Kaepernick kneeling during the national anthem, the act that many say was the forerunner of many of the protests we're seeing now after George Floyd's death. I don't think he's the type of guy sitting back saying, I told you so, or he, or he wants to take credit. Knowing his character and where his heart is and some things he has said to me, you know, well before now, I think he's more about let's get this situation fixed. That's coming up on the next episode of Colors. As we go, we want to thank all of those who've helped us behind the scenes. Julia Ziegler, Joel Oxley, Greg Strassel, Hillary Howard, Brennan Hazelton, Mike Jakaitis, Liz Anderson, Lisa Weiner, Thomas Warren, Stephanie Gaines Bryant, Tiffany Arnold, Dimitri Sotis, Melissa Howell, Beth Gibbs, Kyle Cooper, and of course, Jesse Gallagher and Cosmic for our music. And thank you for listening. And remember, keep talking to each other. This is Colors, a dialogue on race in America. Subscribe to Colors on Apple, Spotify, Podcast One, or wherever you get your podcasts.